Well, good afternoon and welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, and I'll be hosting this show today along with Eric Crema, who will do a live today Spotlight on Success with Mike Broderick, and he's in the studio right now. Welcome, Mike. Thank you. (laughs) And uh, what are you going to be talking about with uh, Mike a little later? So we're going to talk a little bit about um, just what's going on in real estate, the mortgage industry, but more specifically reverse mortgages. He's quite an expert, and we've had him on various programs on the stations, and uh, back by popular demand, here he is live. You know, as I look at our windows, I notice that there's some gray out there. There was actually some sprinkles today, and I mentioned that because I thought to myself, I don't want to see the rain. And then I got to thinking about what's going on down there in Florida with that uh, hurricane that just now, right now, is making landfall as we talk. Oh, is that right? So okay. it's just Our, our uh, thoughts now, are right? out there for them. So people sure. be safe. You know, we get people that listen via the Internet stream and, and through our podcast. So uh, Certainly. Hope, hope everybody's safe down there. Yeah, really. It sounds like a real dangerous storm. Oh Nothing to fool with. And I hope, yes, everybody is safe through that. You have a great show. You've got a great lineup of people to talk yeah, to. Yeah, yeah. This is uh, quite interesting today. Uh, we're going to have our comedy segment for the second time. We're trying something new and seeing how people like that. But the big news is that we have Randy Johnson with us today. He's not here in the studio, but we did do an interview with him uh, last week, and it was a delightful time spending with him. And uh, he talked about his career in Seattle. That's what I mainly mm-hmm. focused on. He played for 22 seasons. I didn't realize he had played that many years in baseball with seven different teams. But again, we talked about mainly his uh, experience in Seattle, which was about nine years he spent here. So that uh, was something that you set up, and it was a great interview, and uh, we're going to talk to him in a few moments. And um, Voices in History for today, on September 28th, the Liberty Loan Parade was held in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania with catastrophic consequences. I'm much more sympathetic and understanding of what occurred then in like 1921, or excuse me, about 1918, than if I had read this three years ago. That's the hint for mm, that today. Gotcha. Uh, then we have on later on the show, Stuart Elway with the latest Elway poll. What are Washingtonians thinking about the election coming up and some of the issues we'll be voting on in November? And uh, let's see our one-hit wonder today. The hint is it's a Dutch rock band that formed in 1967, disbanded in 1973. They broke up several times along the way. I think they had difficulty getting along. (laughs) But they did have one huge hit, and that would be the one-hit wonder for today. So, um, again, my name is Paul Casey, and, again, we have Eric Crema today. And uh, want to just let you know what this show is about. We talk with people who are uh, interested in uh, public affairs, travel, fitness, education, entertainment, real estate, which we're talking about today, and entrepreneurship. So here we have it. Anything you'd like to talk about, uh, you can call 425-653-1166 and uh, weigh in on any issues we're talking about today or any other time. That's 425-653-1166. Just leave your recording. Comedy. Coming up next. The male gypsy moth can smell the female gypsy moth from up to seven miles away. And that fact also works if you remove the word moth. (laughs) First time I ever told that joke was on BBC Radio 4. And we got a letter of complaint in from the National Gypsy Council. So I wrote back, of course, they'd moved on. Here's a frightening fact. If you took all the money that we in the West spend on food in one week, you could feed the third world for one year. Now, I don't know about you good people, but I can't help feeling we're being overcharged for our groceries. (laughs) Now, my job is writing harsh, brutal jokes. I can't compete recently with stuff I've just overheard. 
I was in a doctor's waiting room, sat opposite these two ladies in their early 60s, and one of the ladies, just trying to start a bit of conversation with her friend, looked down at a copy of the newspaper, a stark image of famine on the cover of the paper. And she turned to her friend, she said, this famine, it's terrible, isn't it? And her friend, without skipping a beat, went, yeah, but they don't get our winters. <laughs> about half of you laughing and half of you thinking, the winter here can be rough. I got stopped in the street the other day by one of those charity muggers. You know the ones with the clipboard and the optimism? <laughs> Chuggers, a lot of people call them. I call them chunts. <laughs> anyway, stopped me in the street and went, do you know how often people die from AIDS? I said, I'm not an expert, but I'm guessing just the once, is it? <laughs> You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word. So we're going to uh, now go to the interview we had uh, about a week ago with Randy Johnson. And uh, I gave him somewhat of an introduction already. Yeah. So uh, why don't you tell us uh, how this all came together, Eric? Well, you know, one of our partners, Tulalip Casino Resorts, uh, they have a grand opening of their sports book, or it actually is happening on that day that we went up there. So Randy was on site to help celebrate with elders and tribal members uh, the ribbon-cutting ceremony, and it was just gave us an opportunity to help out a particular network that needed a feed to go up uplinked with his uh, interview. And then we got some time with him. And uh, specifically, you did. Uh, we got the equipment all set up, and we thought, you know, we only get about seven, eight minutes. So, Paul, you take this one. You had some great questions, and I'm excited to hear these responses because, actually, this is the first time I'm going to hear them. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. That's yeah. good to hear. Um, yeah, so we did uh, get through seven questions during the time we spent with him. And um, I started out the first one because I've been a big Mariner fan since their inception in 1977. and. Of course, he came in in 1988 and really began to turn things around very quickly. And uh, one of the things I asked him about was probably the biggest year in the history of baseball in Seattle, at least my opinion, was 1995, because that year saved baseball in Seattle. I could go on and on about this and do a whole show on it, but we're limited in time. But there's no doubt in my mind that had not that team did what they did late-season heroics. There were 13 games behind first place, and they came in and caught the Angels on the last day of the season. They um, went into a one-game playoff. Randy Johnson pitched. Yep. They won the game, went into the playoffs for the first time in history. So that was that season. But more important, again, is that Seattle was about ready to lose baseball. Jeff Smullyan was the owner. He was going on to Tampa, and he was going to take the team elsewhere until this team did what they did. So I asked Randy Johnson, does he really understand the impact that he had mm. and had in saving baseball in Seattle? And this is what he had to say. I have to agree with you based on what I've heard and uh, not having that year, I think, uh, you know, would have just kind of given more power to the people that didn't really think baseball deserved a new stadium. But seeing how baseball thrived and seeing how the fan support rallied around that year, I think that changed the opinions of millions of people. And inevitably, I think it was in 2000 or 2001, five or six years later, the Kingdom, you know, w was demolished. And then you had the stadium across the street, the new stadium. So, you know, I don't know the percentage of what 95 did. But if I was a gambling man and I'm in a casino right now, I would say it was at least 51% that 95 implemented the new stadium there, and the Mariners are still there. Well, I uh, really agree with the spirit of what he said yeah. when he said 51%. I disagree. I think that that team had a 90% impact in saving baseball in Seattle. And briefly, I'm going to say that uh, number two would be Slade Gordon, our U.S. senator, who went and found Nintendo president Hirihashi uh, Yaka, no, excuse me, Yamanuchi and uh, funded the team to stay right. here, and that's what allowed the, uh, well, then Safeco Field to get built. 
I'd have to give Norm Rice, the mayor of Seattle, a lot of credit for that, as well as the state legislature who came in, and we're talking the whole state, who came in and said, this team has got to stay. A year before, I think everybody would have said, yeah. well, go try it somewhere else. So anyhow, that's uh, my uh, take on what Randy Johnson had to say about that. Um, also, something I talked about, we're talking about need for a new stadium, is that there was a game where the ceiling tiles fell down that. from the ceiling, right? <laughs> I read again that it was because they were pressure washing it for years and essentially the concrete dome, mm-hmm. and then it seeped on through, and then eventually these large, large tiles came down, and they really would have hurt somebody had they hit somebody yes. at the time. So this was interesting because um, the team had to go on the road for the rest of the season, but the season was shortened to about 20 games later because of a strike. So right. anyhow, I asked Randy Johnson his recollection of this uh, episode. I don't really remember a lot of that stuff. I mean, it was so far back. I, I do remember I do remember stretching as a team. We were on the infield uh, stretching before batting practice, and a uh, tile, a shingle, had fallen from the top of the kingdom ceiling to the ground. And from that point on, I think uh, a lot of our games had to be on the road. So there you go. Uh, It happened, and uh, then again, um, the uh, strike happened, and that kind of probably helped out the team some because they would have had to play on the road for the rest of the season. I don't think that's been done in modern history, but it didn't happen to the Mariners simply because of that strike. So um, just want to skip ahead to uh, the clip number three, and that is when I was talking to him again about the 1995 team. It's those details. I don't remember a lot. It's all a bit of a blur. I mean, when you mentioned the tile falling, I remember that. Uh, when you mentioned 95, I don't know all the litigation that was going on that that got us, uh, got the Mariners. Uh, I'd like to think that I did my part in resurrecting uh, the Mariner uh, franchise that year and, and propelling them into getting a new stadium. Uh, it, it was fun having an opportunity to down the road to pitch against the Mariners and the new ballpark. I thought that was fitting that I pitched the first shutout there. And that was on July 20th, 1999, Arizona 6, Seattle nothing. I looked it up, and he was right. Wow. So there you have it. Um, Then I just wanted to change the subject into something else, and that was photography. He's quite a photographer, and I wanted to bring that up, and here's what he had to say about that. No, I've been, I uh, studied uh, photography, uh, photojournalism in college at USC. So uh, it was something that actually took a back seat to my baseball. Uh, but, you know, during my Seattle uh, days, I was out taking pictures of the Space Needle and Pike Place Market. And there's uh, actually a picture uh, when it snowed one year, it might have been 91, 92, down in, there was an old magazine stand right around uh, Pike Place Market. And uh, had my uh, medium format camera on a snowy day there, black and white film, and it's still a picture that I have in my house, and that's uh, pretty much encapsulated uh, my memory of Seattle uh, during that time period. So uh, I wanted to get to the subject of the pitch clock, and we're starting, we are, but the baseball, Major League Baseball, is starting the pitch clock next year, meaning that a pitcher, when he gets the ball back into his hand from the catcher, a pitch clock will go on. It lasts 15 seconds. If they don't deliver the pitch in that length of time, there's a ball called automatically. Hmm. Now, I've been uh, watching that in the minor leagues this year in Tacoma, and it was uh, at the start of the season, actually the pitch clock was getting violated, and you would see balls called. Halfway through the season, not an issue. The players were used to it. They were pitching the ball on time. And the game does move much faster. So anyhow, that's what I talked to him about. And I wanted to get his take on the pitch clock. And this is what he had to say. Well, quickie in the game has always been a topic. Even when I was playing, the umpires and people with Major League Baseball would come in and and tell the players what they were trying to do and try to uh, implement that. Even when I was playing baseball, uh, less walking around on the mound, for hitters, less stepping out of the batter's box and try to quicken the game up. It's It's been going on since the early 90s. They've been trying to do that. 
I was actually in Hillsboro, Oregon, uh, where there's a, a, an A-ball affiliate of the Arizona Diamondbacks, the Hillsboro Hops. They've incorporated that, the time clock, and the game was two and a half hours long. So it doesn't matter whether it's a minor league game or a major league game, the clock starts when it starts, and you're going to have a two and a half hour game. Uh, I didn't see any problem with it. So there I wanted to continue on with that for a moment because uh, my recollection of him pitching was he worked fast Mm -hmm. and probably the 15-second clock wouldn't affect him that much even if we were pitching today, and this is what he had to say. You know, I I don't know. I mean, I never had to work under a clock, but I think for a pitcher you want to work fast and and get in a a pattern and get some momentum on your side, and I think – when you're doing well, someone's trying to slow your momentum down, obviously break that timing, and that's when they step out of the batter's box. Or for you, the pitcher, when you got a hitter that is doing well, you're stepping off the mound or doing whatever. Uh, but it wasn't an issue back when I pitched. Uh, I have been to games now to see how it works. And, you know, I was at two games, and they were two and a half hours long. Yeah. And that's what Major League Baseball wants. They want people to still come out and support MLB, but they want the games for the benefit of not having them there uh, because that's the biggest complaint, I guess, is being there for three, four hours, and it's just, uh, it drags on. And I think they're trying to, you know, quicken the game up to the best of their ability, uh, and hopefully in what I've witnessed, uh, it will it will work. I don't think Randy Johnson will have any disagreement on that. Uh, as I said, I've observed it in Tacoma. The game has picked up considerably. No fans are saying, oh, my gosh, I want this game to go right. another three hours, you know. So, anyhow, from that uh, point of view, final question. What was it like pitching in the Kingdom? I didn't know anything different unless until I went on the road. So, it was my home ballpark, uh, and I didn't know anything, you know, different than the Kingdom. I had made nine major league starts prior to the Kingdom with the Montreal Expos, and that ballpark wasn't much better. Uh, it was dark, and that was an Olympic stadium. So as far as glamour and history and all that, I didn't have those ballparks uh, uh, throughout the, my career. But again, 22 seasons on seven different teams, including the Seattle Mariners. So it's a great time talking to Randy Johnson. So um, now we got really Nice interview coming up with uh, someone in the studio by the name of Mike Broderick and Eric Kramer. Take it away in just a moment. Hey, Paul, great job on that interview. Wonderful to hear those remarks, both by you and he. And uh, what a just interesting person to talk to. Absolutely. I love it. Great questions. In studio, as you said, we have Mike Broderick. He is with uh, Homebridge. Mike, how are you? Very good. Thank you. Thanks for being here today. Really appreciate it. I enjoy it. Now, we've met on many occasions as we've talked about uh, your business, and I've you've, you've taught me a lot about re- the reverse mortgage business. And uh, just anecdotally, prior to going on the air here, we were just sort of talking about the temperature out there in in uh, r- the real estate land lots of anxiety right correct yeah both on probably on both sides the homeowners and the sellers i mean the uh, the people that actually represent the homeowners and the, and the buyers exactly the market has turned around rapidly within mm-hmm. the last 3 months yeah and as as rates go up i'm sure that anxiety ramps up a little bit too um, I, I understand here in the Northwest, we're a bit insulated due to just the market is a hot market in general, and that some cities are different than others. Um, so uh, I, I always say consult the professionals. So if you, you know, if you need to know exact data on that day, maybe don't rely on the Internet. Maybe rely on a real person that's on the ground. Exactly. Talking to a local person is very helpful because they're, they have their finger on the pulse of what's happening here. Yeah, and Paul, we were talking about interest rates, uh, and you had mentioned a house that you had owned and the rate that you had at one point. What did you say? It was, it was north of 10? Yeah, first house I ever bought, I think it was 1979, and it was uh, 12%. And I refinanced maybe two years later when things eased up some, 
and it was under 10%, and I thought I had just struck gold. I mean, I remember the day when they said you got one day to go, and it hit nine, and I locked in, and I just thought I had won the lottery. Wow. Yeah, and I've been through that, too. I bought my home in 84, and the interest rate was 16%. Wow, and that was and that was a VA loan, and it was lower than the predominant prevailing interest rate at that time too. So my thought was just do what I have to do right now, and we'll refinance later on. And then the then you know the market turned as they always do; they go up, they go down. But when it turned and the interest rates started to improve, well, that was a refinance boom for everybody. Yes, I must have refinanced five different times. You know, as the rates kept on dropping, and so one just takes advantage of what the market is presenting at that time. So I guess it's like anything else. You know, people look at their four hundred one k, and if you look at it too often, you start to get a little panicked and sweaty, and you're thinking, "Oh my goodness, I've lost so much money in the last six, eight, nine months, whatever." Yeah. But you need to take a big, deep breath. Know that a lot of this is cyclical, correct? Correct. Up and down. I've been through a lot of cycles, and it goes up. And, uh, and the market kind of slows down. Uh, people get out of the business. People get out of real estate. People get out of mortgages because they can't generate enough business. But my thought is, uh, if you've been around for a while, we all know that you just got to hang on through the bad times because it always turns around. And, uh, and you can't predict it either. You just got to wait it out. Right now, we're worried about what's going on with the feds and how that affects the bond market. It's very, the word is it's very volatile. <laughs> and it, but it has been through volatility before. It'll calm down. We just got out of a two-year boom in which interest rates were going down, and we had people who refinance, and then six months later they'd refinance again as things improve. So again, you just got to live with what's going on. Sure. People in the business just got to wait it out. Yeah. Okay. And, and as we all do that, um, certainly. You've got to look at your own options. You've got to, things have changed so much, even in the last two years. More and more people are working from home for longer hours, many more days. Right. Um, we're seeing that big trend, and, and that affects what type of houses people are looking at, location. Uh, sometimes now location isn't as important because you aren't commuting in as much as five days a week. Maybe it's only two, you know. Sure. So lots of changes there. And you've seen a lot of it, but on a different side to a degree. Your expertise is in reverse mortgages. So for those people who are listening that just really have no idea, maybe they've heard the term, but they have no idea what it really means, can you kind of give us a, a, one, a, a 101 class on reverse mortgages? Certainly. Reverses, uh, primarily uh, one needs to know that they are a mortgage. We're not buying the home. So it's a mortgage very similar to the forward-type mortgages that everyone is used to. So you're working on your equity. So for a retired person, I see over the years that they're looking at their finances a lot differently than a person who's still working. Mm-hmm. So a retired person is normally uh, has their mortgage paid off or they have a very low mortgage, but they're sick and tired of paying the mortgage. So they'll refinance in order to pay off the mortgage. Yeah, you, you know... Th- that's that's been kind of the crux of of the confusion I think for a lot of people. Uh, I just just so happens yesterday I've got I got a wonderful invitation from AARP to join them, so I've hit that number. <laughs> so I'm going to make that decision. But it makes you start thinking about okay, what do I want my retirement to look like? How do reverse mortgages figure into that thought process? So a reverse mortgage usually well usually but always improves a person's. Uh, finances by eliminating the principal and interest on the mortgage that they have right now. We're not getting rid of the mortgage. We're just refinancing it and putting it into another mortgage where the interest is accruing on a monthly basis. It's added to your balance, but they are not making a principal and interest payment like they are on the regular mortgage. Now for those customers, now that's good because we'll look at a lump sum that will loan them if we use a portion of it to pay off their mortgage. That means what remains is available either as a line of credit or as a monthly check or as a lump sum distribution. So that's available with the adjustable rate mortgage. The fixed rate mortgage is somewhat different, and we need to talk about that if you're interested in it. So with my customers, they're usually 
improving their uh, cash flow by getting rid of the principal and interest payment. I see. And, but uh, they're also looking at having a line of credit that's available for use when and if they need it. Or some of them will say, uh, I just need a monthly check uh, mm-hmm. sent to me automatically. I find it interesting that um, a couple of things are happening in this great society of ours. One, number one, we all seem to be living longer. Um, we're mobile longer. You know, it's, it's people are staying fit, I think, much further into their lifespan and doing a lot of walking and jogging and pickleball is now all the rage, you know, that sort of thing. So you're staying healthy. And there comes this point where you're thinking, I might want to just stay in my house and yeah, I'm going to do some safety things, maybe in the shower, some hand, uh, hand, handrails and things like that, just in case. But, and there's, there's whole industries about that, you know, to convert your house so that you can live there longer. Do you get a lot of that part of the conversation from people saying, you know what, I just want to stay in my home, but I do need this cash flow? Right. Is that kind of, that seems where maybe a reverse mortgage might come in. Uh, the reverse mortgage will improve the cash flow as well, too. And as I've said, the line of credit or the monthly check is a great relief for most of my customers. They're just saying, now I don't have to worry about my finances as much as I had before. Of course, this isn't a panacea. It's not going to cure all ills. But having a standby line of credit with a reverse mortgage is very beneficial. Another thing about this line of credit is it is not diminished if the value of the home goes down. It's not tied to the home value at all. Mm, okay. So unlike having a HELOC where you could have it reduced or eliminated if the value of your home goes down, such as they did during the recession, the uh, home, the line of credit that we had with a reverse mortgage was never reduced. As a matter of fact, there's a growth rate with our line of credit, and it will increase slightly every year the, the amount of money that you could borrow. Mike, thanks so much for your time, pulling back that curtain a little bit so that we can really see what it's about. You're such an appro- approachable person, and I know you're sort of old school in that you like people to call you Correct. because this is not a, 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 a an A, B, or C answer. You really need to talk to people to see if it's even right for them. Would you like to give your phone number up? Yes. Uh, my cell is 425-698-9889. And... There's a lot of nine eights there, but four two five six nine eight ninety eight eighty nine. And I would say we need to talk about a reverse mortgage. We need to get over what you think it is and talk about what it really is too. Well, you've really were here for us. I appreciate your information, your expertise and coming into the studio. Safe travels to you. And we'll be right back with more of Voices of Experience. <laughs> Listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. If you have questions, comments, or topics that you would like to suggest for future shows, call Paul at 206-714-8154. That's 206-714-8154. Welcome back to Voices of Experience. I'm going to give that phone number out one more time. Thanks, okay? Because it is a complicated situation right now, and it's good to be able to talk to someone about reverse mortgages, which has been around for a long time. That phone number, again, is 425-698-9889. Mike Broderick. So very good information. Thank you. we got to do more of that because, yes, people are mm-hmm. a little bit uneasy right now, and what when I was talking about, I'm not as much because I've lived through some of this, but things that you go through the first time. I heard an ad. You're absolutely right. I heard an ad for a real estate agent recently on the radio. And she had said, this buyer is willing to put $10,000 down toward buying down your rate. So that's the first time I've heard that in a long time. Um, So I think things are shifting, but uh, thankfully we live in such a beautiful state, beautiful area. And the demand's high. Yeah. And I'm not going to go into what I predicted in 2008 when you touched on that because I was 100% wrong (laughs) what I projected for the future. I'm glad there wasn't any recordings around because somebody would be playing that every day for me. (laughs) 
Well, this is historical, uh, nice lead into Voices in History, a segment that I really enjoy, and I hope the audience enjoys it too. And by the way, just want to let everybody know, I get a lot of this um, information from the History Channel, okay? If you love history, yeah, you just need to go um, the History Channel, look at it, and these dates come up. They do such an incredible job. So let's start with um, September 26th, 1960. It was the first time in history a debate between major presidential candidates on live TV show. It was a debate between presidential hopefuls John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon, and it took place in a Chicago studio. The topic, domestic affairs. And I've heard this historically, and I'm throwing this in. Most people feel that Kennedy won the debate if they watched the debate on TV, overwhelmingly. Mm -hmm. Just as overwhelmingly was people felt Nixon won the debate if they listened to it on the radio. Interesting. But so many more people were watching TV than listened to radio. Kennedy was viewed as the winner. This was the first of four debates. Wow. On September 26, 1957, West Side Story opens in Winter Garden Theater on Broadway, and it was composed by Leonard Bernstein. As we know now, there's a second movie out about the West Side Story playing in theaters now. Amazing life on that. Yeah, it uh, really is. So I'll go check that out as well. Uh, let's see. In, on September 26, 1969, a TV series called the Brady Bunch <laughs> premiered, and um, after 177 episodes, ABC canceled The Brady Bunch, and the last episode aired on August 30th, 1974. Wow. Got to be honest, never was a big fan of the show, but there I, it is. I was a huge fan. Were to you? absolutely remember eating Cheerios watching it in the morning. Now, a lot of, a lot of it was repeats. Well, that's what they said. I kind of cut that out, but I can get it back in, but The Brady Bunch became a massive hit in Re, uh, syndication. Be nice to, to get that point. check, huh? Yeah, exactly. I think they did much better there. And the other thing I read, the really the real family, the Brady Bunch, eh, they had their issues. So sure. Anyhow, um, another thing I vaguely remember this: Rachel Carlson wrote a book called Silent Spring. It was published in uh, 1962 on September 27th. The book shed light on the damage of man-made pesticides. Really, for the first time. And this publication is viewed as the beginning of the modern environmental uh, movement in America. So Interesting. Yeah, that, I think it is. Had I roots right they, there. Yeah. And uh, let me do a few more of these yeah. uh, because I think we have the time. Um, here, I spoke earlier about this on the top of the show, and uh, it had to do with the pandemic. And on September 28th, today... In 1918, the Liberty Loan Parade in Philadelphia prompts a huge outbreak of the Spanish flu in that city. By the time this pandemic ended, ended, an estimated 20 to 50 million people had died of the Spanish flu worldwide. Now, I just went back and looked at a few statistics. One is the population of the United States at that time was 106 million people. Um, now it's uh, 332 million, what, almost doubled or more than doubled. Triple, yeah. And the world was um, 1.9 billion at that time, and now we're like 7.6 billion. So yeah. think of 20 to 50 million people dying then, percentage-wise, as compared to what we have just been going through, and hopefully it's going yeah, that's in the rearview mirror. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's uh, pretty remarkable that that occurred. But, again, that happened... This day in 1918, this Liberty Loan Parade. Interesting. Let's see. Um, one more. On October 2nd, 1967, Thurgood Marshall was sworn in as the first black Supreme Court justice. There you have it. Uh, Voices in History for today. It's a good one. Yeah. Great job. So, uh, anyhow, we um, will be back in just a few moments. And uh, I'd like to move to something here since we talked to Randy Johnson, today is, um, you know, a baseball theme. And I had an interview with Ito Vanny uh, years ago, probably about 25 years ago. And he was Mr. Baseball in this town long before Ken Griffey Jr. 
grew up locally, Queen Anne High School and all that stuff. So let's just get to it if we can. A true Seattle baseball legend, Ido Vanny, is with us this morning on Profiles of Experience. He grew up in Seattle, attending Queen Anne High School, and had the first hit, first stolen base, and scored the first run at 6 Seattle Stadium that stood in the heart of Rainier Valley between 1939 and 1978. He was a player on three championship Seattle Rainier baseball teams of the Pacific Coast League. He was also manager and general manager in later years of the Seattle Rainiers. He was also the director of sales for the Seattle Pilots during their one and only major league year in the Pacific Northwest. Good morning, Mr. Vanny, and welcome to Profiles of Experience. Do you think Seattle proved it was a baseball town last fall? I've always said that Seattle was a baseball town from back in the golden areas of 1939, 40, and 41, when Mr. Sick took over the franchise and built a new stadium out there in Rainier Valley called Sick Stadium. I've always said if you give Seattle a winner, the people would go out in the cow pasture to watch you play. What did you make as a player for the Rainiers in 1939? In 1939, I made $250 a month, plus $3 a day meal money, which wasn't an awful lot, but I had a lot of incentive clauses in my contract. Well, what do you think about players' salaries today? Well, I, I think the players' salaries might be a little out of line, but if they keep getting out of line, even if we build a new stadium, they're going to have to scale a house seats, prices of the seats to accommodate the salaries that are going to come in because those uh, those suites up there, not everybody's going to be able to go up there and sit in those suites. You've got to think of the poor soul that brings a wife and uh, four kids to a ball game. They've got to have seats for those people to come. They're the best salesmen you got around. And if they can't go to the ball games, who's going to go? Do you think the uh, baseball strike permanently hurt baseball? I think it did, and I certainly hope that it doesn't ever happens again. If they do, if they have another baseball strike, they might as well pack up and find a good padlock for these doors on these stadiums because the people will not put up with it. Why do you think that baseball is so enduring and so popular? Well, it's always been a popular game because it's a simple game. The rules haven't changed in 100 years except for this DH that they have, and uh, it's the same confines. You're still playing the same game with the bat and ball and the glove. And the fundamentals of the game are still the same. If you want to bunt, you've got to be able to bunt a guy over. You've got to hit and run or a stolen base. The only thing that I'd say that it's upgraded to baseball is probably the playing fields that they have today. And probably the uh, uniforms. You played in those wool suits that were, I imagine, extremely hot. We'd go into Sacramento. The temperature would be 115, 118, 120, and you play in those wool suits. And, boy, it was hot. Yeah, we had a 200-game schedule in those days. We played uh, uh, a week in each town, which was, uh, which was a good thing because you could unpack your clothes and you could set up house like you wanted, you know, and you'd be going to the ballpark each day and you'd probably face one pitcher on Tuesday and you'd see him again on Sunday or Saturday night, which was very helpful. And you learned to, to set up schedules on your own little scorecard, how this guy pitched me and got me out the time before. How am I going to hit him again on Saturday night or Sunday? Well, what was your favorite team that you played on and why? Well, my favorite team that I played on here in Seattle was the 1940 team. As a team and as a unit, they played together with good teamwork. And to me, the 1940 team was probably the best one that, that I had here. And I also was associated with many other pennant winners here in Seattle. Baseball legend, Ido Vanny, thank you very much for spending time in Voices of Experience. Thank you, Paul. We're actually running ahead today, guys. Yeah, we, are. we are, you know, really nailing it here today. Ido Vanny, uh, what a legend he was, and that word is thrown out a lot, legend. But, uh, again, he was a person who was born in Seattle, grew up in Seattle, played at Queen Anne High School, went on to play for the Seattle Rainiers, and he mentioned the 1940 team being his favorite. And I believe, if I'm remembering this correctly, the Rainiers won the Pacific Coast League title 1939, 1940, and 1941, three years in a row. And, you know, they used to travel by trains then, and it's so much of a different world. And they played a lot of doubleheaders. Uh, They'd settle down, I think he mentioned, in a town for like a whole week, take off, uh, you know, their hang up their clothes and, and, you know, spend some time 
getting ready for the games. And there were a lot of teams in the Coast League then. And um, it was a, a fascinating uh, time, for, I think, for baseball in Seattle. And Seattle was really known during that era as one of the best baseball towns in America. It really had that uh, attraction to many people. And the team drew extremely well. And um, Ido Vanni was certainly much a part of that. And then when we had our major league team come to Seattle in 1969, he was in the front office selling tickets. And, of course, uh, people probably don't remember that as well as I do. I went to the opening game, very young kid, went to that game. But that's what we call the one-year wonder team. They were gone after Mm -hmm. one year, went to Milwaukee, and uh, that's the Milwaukee Brewers now. But it took us a long time to get baseball back here in Seattle. And that's why we circle around to what we talked about with Randy Johnson is that we almost lost the team a second time. And had we lost that team in that time, Major League Baseball would never have come back here. We would have permanently lost that team. And uh, what's ironic is that I mentioned that Jeff Smullyan was the owner then. He was trying to work a deal with Tampa to get him down there. And Tampa has a team since. They didn't get the Mariners, but they draw like 11,000 people a game. That's all. I mean, they've struggled for years, and that's where he wanted to get them out of Seattle. I'm going to say what? When the uh, Safeco Field opened up in 1999, by 2001, I may have a year wrong, but they drew over 3 million fans for that year and several years in that time, 2.8 million they drew the most fans in baseball uh, during that uh, particular time. So it's uh, pretty impressive in how various events come into place and uh, really uh, unexpectedly make such a difference. And it's just remarkable that that team was saved. And uh, as I said earlier, the players, major players in that were like Senator Slade Gordon (laughs) and uh, how he – did that together. As a matter of fact, he saved baseball twice in Seattle because he's the one who got the lawsuit filed and um, that allowed the Mariners to stay here. Ah, I can just get going on this, but <laughs> do we have Stu with us? Stu Elway. Good. He is with us now. Hi, Stu. Hi, Paul. Welcome. So glad you are here. And um, we're switching from sports. I don't know if you heard earlier, we had Randy Johnson on the air. Oh. Actually, it was a recording from last week, and I just did a little ramble on baseball in terms of Ido Vanni, you know, being um, one of the major players in this market for so many years. And uh, so yeah. anyhow, now we're moving on to a real serious subject, and that is what the people are thinking in the state of Washington as we come closer to the election. You are the expert here. You've been doing this for so long. And basically, I um, just have the question is, anything on your latest survey that jumped out at you, surprised you as to how the people in the state of Washington are thinking? Well, one of the things that, that jumped out was um, how partisan the races have become. It, it, it used to be, as you say, I've done this for a while. It used to be um, Washington voters would, would talk a lot about it, vote for the candidate, not the party and all that. Uh, lately, and particularly now, it seems that partisan identification has become much more prominent. Um, so we, we asked people in this question, what are the factors that are going to influence your vote? And, and I didn't ask what issues are important to you. I asked what factors are important um, on purpose. And um, so for the uh, and there was a split between Republicans and Democrats. They aren't they aren't thinking about the same things as they go into this election. For Republicans, the number one issue by far was the economy. Uh, a third of the Republicans said the economy. For the Democrats, that was their number four or five issue. So Republicans said the economy, and then the next thing was crime, and the next thing was party identification. For the Democrats, the number one thing was abortion. And the second thing was party identification, and then it dropped way down to environment and climate, um, which, uh, and, and then the economy. So 
the, the parties are, are not only thinking about party identification as a major factor in how they decide to vote, but the two parties are not looking at the same thing when they, when they decide to vote. Nothing surprising just, there. Just, I don't think the way things have been going, I guess, but a little bit of a surprise there. What do you think about the U.S. Senate race or what's going on there? Well, the, the Senate race, Patty Murray still has a, uh, a uh, uh, solid lead um, in our um, uh, September poll, which finished September 15th. She had a 13-point lead, 50 to 37 over Tiffany Smiley. So she's at 50, um, which is kind of the, the, obviously the crest, uh, that the, the bar you want to get over in the polling. That means that, according to our poll, Smiley would have to take all of the undecided votes and take votes away from Murray in order to win. Now, that's um, – uh, so that, that makes it a, a, a heavy lift. But yeah, not impossible, as we've seen. In- yeah, kind of looks that way. And speaking of um, surprises at some point years ago, um, it's, it appears that Trump's support is remaining very solid among Republicans in the state. Is that observation accurate, or can you see any cracks in his support here? Well, uh, we asked people, the, the question we asked in this survey was uh, if, if the election came down to uh, Trump and Biden again, uh, how would you vote? And overall, it was like 21 said Trump, um, 26 said, said Biden, and 35% said somebody else, and then 19% were undecided. But among Republicans, it was 55% of Republicans would prefer Donald would, would vote for Donald Trump again. So um, that indicates he has a pretty clear, uh, you know, still has a majority hold uh, on the uh, on his party. Okay. Uh, the the and the Democratic side was like 38 percent prefer would prefer Biden and 45 percent want somebody else. So it's it's much more split up on the Democratic side. But Trump still has a has a hold on the party here, even in Washington State. Secretary of State. Something very different this year. Uh, we have Steve Hobbs running as a Democrat, but he is running against Julie Anderson, who is running as a nonpartisan, and he's leading, but not by much. Not by much. Um, interesting, you know, this is the first time in uh, about 54 years that there hasn't been a Republican incumbent on the ballot for Secretary of State. Uh, it's an off year for that race, and of course Hobbs was uh, appointed. So neither of these have, have been elected to this office. Um, so that's one variable in there, uh, or, or that's a couple of variables. And then, as you point out, Anderson is running as a nonpartisan. So there's no Democrat, uh, or no Republican. I mean, on the ballot at all. So um, that is uh, making for some. Uh, late deciding. We had 40% still undecided in that race. It seemed that Anderson was picking up the non-Democrat vote. Um, that is, uh, she's leading 46 to 6 among Republicans and 36 to 16 among independents, while, while Hobbs had a, strong, uh, uh, a lead about 63% in the Democratic side. So even the Democrat voters he hasn't consolidated the Democrat voters, so it's still very, very much uh, in flux. And interestingly, uh, Hobbs was leading by 10 points among women, um, and Anderson was leading among men, which uh, I attribute largely to the, the uh, partisan factor. There's quite a gender gap in Republican and Democrat party identification, with women much more likely to uh, say they're Democrats than men. Got it. Um, I certainly like the idea of having the Secretary of State's race nonpartisan, but that's my opinion. We'll talk about that another time. Yeah, um, people will tell you they like that, but now it's, they're faced with it, and it's confusing. Yeah, I can understand. Another confusing thing is that, I just want to bring it up briefly, and that is the first and second choice that is yeah. now gaining some popular momentum in other cities and that would be yeah. that you vote for your candidates, then you vote for others, and it goes over to your vote would go to the second-place finisher and all that. 
And the Democrats seem to support that, and the Republicans do not. Yes. Uh, overall, we had uh, in our poll 49% in favor, almost half, uh, and 37%, um, I'm sorry, 49% opposed it, and 37% favored it. Um, half the Democrats were in favor, 63% of the Republicans were opposed, and uh, 52% of the independents were opposed. It seemed to be mostly favored among younger voters and people in Seattle, and it was opposed by um, people uh, over age 50 and people in rural and small towns. So I think it's, it, you know, it's a new idea. People aren't that familiar with it. Um, it's hard to get a, a good reading in one, one survey question, you know, because it, it is a little bit complicated. I think we'll People will learn more about it because we just um, had that experience in Alaska, and they're going to they're going to do it again with the same candidates in November. So, um, that, and Sarah Palin's in that race, so it attracts a lot of attention. So, I think there'll be a rising uh, awareness of that, and it's a lot of a lot of folks are are talking about it as a way to sort of moderate this this bitter partisan divide that we have gotten ourselves into in this country. So I, I think that this, there'll be a lot of discussion about it, um, but it's going to take a while, I think, for the public to come around to think uh, we ought to try it. All right. Well, sounds good enough. Stay tuned for the next uh, time you're on the air. Sounds. Uh, right. Thanks for that report and aloha. Aloha. Only you and I know what that means. <laughs> Stu's going to Hawaii. Okay. You have a wonderful trip. Thank you. All right. We'll see you when you get back. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye. So, um, yeah, here we go. We're uh, kind of out of time right now. And Eric saying, Paul, we're out of time. Speed this thing up. So <laughs> that is all the time we have for this edition to Voices of Experience. Thank you to Randy Johnson, Mike Broderick for being here. Yes. And uh, certainly Stu Elway, who just came in with some very interesting trends that are happening right now. It's never boring, is it, uh, in terms of where we're sitting right now, and it probably has never been ever. It's yeah. always up in the air in this country, you know, and that's just the way it is. Um, just want to let you know, Eric, you take this one. Johnny Mathis next week. Yeah, great interview with him. We did that uh, about two or three weeks ago and been sitting on it because he has a concert coming up, and uh, we want to talk all about that com- concert, but really even more importantly, just his history, all the wonderful songs he sang, the awards, the shows, uh, the accolade, it's just, but then you hear it from this humble person. Wonderful Absolutely, interview. Absolutely, yeah. And when's that uh, concert here? It's uh, November 5th, right? Correct. At Muckleshoot? Uh, at, at Muckleshoot Casino. Casino. Mm-hmm. Right, so. All the you, details, but you need to listen next week. Okay, that's right. That's a, <laughs> that's a good cue. I like that. Quote of the week. Always remember rumors are carried by haters, spread by fools, and accepted by idiots. Ziad Abdel Noor.